Let's bow our heads for a short word of prayer before we look further into God's word this evening regarding Bible economics. Our Father which art in heaven, open our understanding now and give us a short opportunity to concentrate and to learn from thy word what you have revealed to us about a most practical matter, the management of the money, the income, the resources, the assets that you bring our way and have given to us to manage wisely. Heavenly Father, grant that we in financial matters might sanctify ourselves in thy sight, pleasing thee more perfectly than we have in the past, providing things honest before the world that might be a testimony to the grace of God, and that we might have lack of nothing so that we might enjoy this world and its relationships to the fullest degree as you have ordained for us if we will but follow your instructions. Bless us now with that inspired word of God that is able to make this thy unworthy servant, the man of God, perfect and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We ask it for the sake and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us remember, first off this evening, the objectives for Bible economics. You need to have money for what five purposes? You need to work diligently and have a wise career plotted out with some savings accumulated for what five reasons? Number one, give to the pastor. Number two, an inheritance for children and grandchildren. Number three, adversity. Number four, those in need. And number five, to save yourselves from church judgment. Five reasons you need to have money laid aside. Most of those aren't taught or emphasized at all in most churches. But there's something that the Lord expects from us. Now, this morning I covered two rules. Rule number one, obey God. Now, that sounds so simple and so trite, but for those of you who've studied Haggai before and who've considered some of the other passages, such as Psalm 8411, that was a promise my wife and I claimed before we were married, no good thing will the Lord withhold from them that walk uprightly. We knew that if we'd walk uprightly, no good thing would He withhold. And what, would you like me to take the next two hours and tell you about the good things that Sherry and Jonathan Crosby have enjoyed in the last ten years of our marriage? In spite of not walking as uprightly as I wish I had, thank God for His mercy in Christ Jesus. But no good thing. I could list things all evening that He has given to us. And we took that promise as a basis for our marriage. But to obey God. You want God on your side financially when you're doing anything. I don't care if you're designing a career path and working towards some promotion. You want God on your side, working on your boss's mind and attitude towards you. You want the Lord working with you in your investments. You don't want Him blowing on it or you'll have very little left. If you violate this scriptural rule, all the rest fall by the wayside. God will overrule them if you don't obey God first. Obedience to God includes the right attitude toward work, promotion, and financial gain. Do you have the attitude I described this morning? Seeking first the kingdom of God, realizing that God's hand is behind adversity and prosperity. And do you delight yourself in the Lord? Do you delight in the Lord of hosts? 
as being a merciful and a great God and King. Do you ever sit around and think on those great and sublime thoughts that there's a great God in heaven? He loves His creatures to do that. And if you do that, He'll reward you for it. Delight thyself also in the Lord. I just listened to a short sermon this afternoon on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Delight in that Lordship and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37 and verse 4. What was rule one? Obey God. Rule number two that we covered this morning, pay God first. Remember some of the ways that men are prone to pay the Lord? They pay Him with a few bucks that they may have wadded up in their pocket from the previous night. They pay the Lord with whatever's left over. They pay the Lord if He'll bless them first. Or they'll pay the Lord with after-tax dollars. When the Bible says, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase, it's talking about paying God first. That is the first expense that you ought to incur. The first use of your income is to give a portion back to God, realizing that everything you have came from Him to begin with. God wants it first. Do you remember Malachi chapter 3 where God said, Try me. I dare you. I dare you, the God of heaven. Try me. See if you can outgive me. I'll give you so much you won't have room to handle it. Now that's what He said. That's what He Have there ever... Listen, let's stop for just a minute. This thought has come to me. How many men in the Bible did not have room for all they had? Were there any such men in Scripture? Sure there were. Weren't there, Brother Newell? Abraham. What did he have to tell his nephew Lot? Sorry, Lot. We've got to split the family up. You're going to have to move way over there somewhere. We can't dwell together. Herds are too large. Too many servants. That ever happen again? Isaac. The Philistines told him in Gerar, you're going to have to move away, Isaac. We can't handle you around here. Your flocks are drinking up all our water. We have nothing left when, after you come through. They had to separate. More room than they could bear. It's happened. David, Solomon, more than heart could wish, Solomon had. More than a man could desire. He satisfied himself with those things. Try the Lord. Challenge God to a giving contest. It is fun. Challenge God to a giving contest sometime. You purpose in your heart to give a certain amount. And an amount should always be a percentage, not an amount, a percentage. Because you're to give as you are prospered, 1 Corinthians 16, which requires a percentage, not an amount. Give a percentage and purpose in your heart to give it and tell the Lord that if He'll, if he'll begin fulfilling that promise in your life, you'll up the ante a little bit. And if He'll continue fulfilling that promise in your life, you'll up the ante even further. Just try it. He doesn't expect you to give one for one with Him. He's only looking for a portion. Try it and see what happens. God said to try it. Your pastor says to try it. It's a great deal of fun. It's, and the Lord does honor it. You say, well, how do you know it's fun? Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. It can be a ball laying out what you're going to give and talking to the Lord about it. I mean, do you make it an enjoyable thing, giving back to the Lord? Or is it a burden every Sunday when you come in 
and you're reminded that you need to pull a five out of your pocket and stuff it in the box? Or do you sit down and purpose and tell your wife the amount and pray about it and just talk to the Lord about what you're going to give and challenge Him to come through with His promises? He likes to be called to remembrance for His promises and He'll honor them. We looked this morning the fact that the New Testament does not require a tithe, but the fact that the Old Testament had those Israelites giving 23 and a third percent. Ten percent to get them to the assembly three times a year where they would have great feasts. That's the passage in the Bible where they were to uh, drink some strong drink. That's the big feast they were to have. And whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, to jog your memories just a bit, then that three and a third percent was for the poor, and the other ten percent was for the service of the Lord's house. You basically do the same thing, don't you? Do you pay to be here? Anybody get here free of charge this evening? Have you ever thought of that as part of your tithe? Probably haven't. But you use some money in the Lord's expense being here this evening. What about those weekends you could work on Sunday and you choose not to? Are you giving to the Lord? You bet you are. You're giving to the Lord in that 10% that the Israelites were to spend in getting to the assemblies. What about laying up in store for the poor? You do that too, don't you? In addition to what you give to the church. The New Testament is arranged just like the Old, except the set amounts aren't required. All the Lord says is, He that giveth liberally will reap liberally. He that gives sparingly or sows sparingly shall reap sparingly. Give, and it shall be measured to you with the same measure that you've meted it. Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. If you want it pressed down, shaken together, running over, and a full measure, then you need to give that same way. Even if you are not financially not in good shape, the Lord requires and deserves your giving. Don't tell me you can't afford to give. I'll turn you to Luke 21 and we'll talk about the poor widow woman. And then I'll tell you that you can't afford not to give if you ever want to be able to afford anything else. Honor the Lord with thy substance and he shall fill your barns. You say, but I don't have anything to give. I'm not even the poor widow woman with two mites. Sell your assets. You say, God never told men to sell what... Oh, he didn't. Did God ever tell men to sell what they owned and give? You bet He did. What did they do in the New Testament? What did the church at Jerusalem do? You just read Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 5. A man named Joseph, having land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's where Ananias and Sapphira got into a little trouble. They were trying to emulate their brother Joseph, except they fudged on how much they got for the land. Selling assets to give to the Lord if you're not giving enough. Don't ever let anybody use the excuse and don't you use the excuse yourself that because you've given to the Lord, you can't meet your other financial obligations. Because I'm so faithful, giving to the Lord's work at the Greenville Church, I don't have any left over for savings. Turn to Matthew 15. A few of the men looked at this passage before the service, but I want everyone to see it. Don't ever try to use that cop-out that you are so zealous spiritually with your money that you have nothing left over for savings for your parents, for your children, and so on. Matthew 15, verse 1, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, 
Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. And Jesus was sorely amazed at their d difficult dilemma that they... But he answered in... Are you all reading Matthew 15, verse 3? But he answered and said unto them... He was asked a question. He ignores the question and asks one of his own. Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say... Now, here's what the Pharisees said. Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother... Now, put another quotation mark. It is a gift. Unquote. By whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. The Pharisees understood what it, what it meant in Exodus chapter 20, when for the sixth commandment it says, Honor thy father and mother. They knew what it meant. Do you know what it meant? It meant pay. They knew that. But they said a man was free if he could tell his parents that what he owed them he had given to the temple. What the Pharisees would do is give it to the temple and then when their parents were in need of whatsoever things you could be profited by me, they'd say it is a gift. It's already been given. I'm sorry, Mom and Dad. You're out in the cold this time because I've given it to the Lord. I'm so faithful in my giving to the Lord, I just don't have anything left over. And the Pharisee system said, you're free. Free of your obligation under the law of honoring your parents with financial support when they are in need. Don't ever use that excuse. You limit your expenses until you're able to keep everything that God expects of you financially. Let's now move now to rule number three. Rule number one is obey God. Rule number two is pay God first. Rule number three is pay yourself second. Now, some of you don't have a very high opinion of yourselves, and so you want to pay everyone else second. And you never pay yourself. You work 40, 60, 80 hours a week, and all you want to do is pay gas station owners, clothing shop owners, Winn-Dixie and Bilo, and your landlord. But you never want to pay yourself. Why do you think so lowly of yourself? Why do you think so lowly of your work? Don't you want to pay yourself for some of that labor? How do you pay yourself? You look at that check and you pay the Lord the percentage that you've purposed in your heart to pay Him. Then you pay yourself the percentage you've purposed to pay yourself and keep of all that labor. And you set it aside and you live on the rest. Now let me prove that that is a Bible rule. God does not expect, want, suggest, or instruct you to save what's left over. God commands, instructs, and expects you to save first and live within what's left. Can we establish that with the Word of God? I mean, it makes good sense to me right off the bat. Can we prove it with the Bible? Let me tell you a little bit about savings, first of all. You wonder why America is going down the tubes economically? You say, I didn't know that it was. You don't know much about America. What if America right now was to uh, liquidate their debt? What if they were to pay up? Are there enough assets on the North American continent 
to pay the debt that this government of ours has incurred. Americans save about 4% of their personal income. These are economic statistics that are kept and reported every month. If you'll just read your paper, you can see them. Americans, on average, save 4% of their personal income. West Germans save 14%. The Japanese save about 20%. Now, let's think about something for a minute. What did the nation of Japan and the nation of West Germany look like just 40 years ago? One big pile of rubble. Had we fought 60 seconds on our own soil, skip Pearl Harbor. But as far as mainland USA, where all production took place, had we fought even 60 seconds in that war? Not on your life. We had sacrificed greatly. You'd think that the American economy ought to be built up so much with the forced savings that takes place during war that we'd be ready to roll after the war. We were. We were. During the 1950s, a U.S. dollar would buy you everything. You couldn't spend 50 bucks in Europe. You couldn't find enough goods to spend it on. A buck would buy anything in Japan or in West Germany after World War II. Would you like to compare the standard of living among those three nations today and see if it was anything like it was after World War II? They have caught up to us in 40 years from a pile of rubble. You want to know why? One major fundamental reason, they save. They save money. Look at Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 20. Proverbs 21. Savings is not a recommendation. I'm not up here tonight. When was the last time you heard me recommend something? It's seldom. I'm not recommending savings. It's a commandment. You need money laid aside for those objectives that I keep reminding you of, an inheritance for your children, a reserve fund for the poor saints, and a reserve fund for adversity in your own life. Proverbs 21:20. There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. What makes the difference between a foolish man and a wise man in Proverbs 21:20? Savings. He doesn't spend it all. See, even the oil and all the treasure that could be in the dwelling of the, the foolish, he spends it all up. He spendeth it up while the wise man has treasure to be desired in his, and oil in his dwelling. But a foolish man, he spends it all. You want to be a wise man? What are you supposed to be? Is it a recommendation not to be foolish in life? Or is it a commandment of the Lord to be a wise man? If you're spending everything that you're making, you are sinning. Period. If you are spending everything that you're making, you are sinning. You say, well, I've got $75 in the bank. How old are you? You say, well, I've got 575 in the bank. How old are you? You know what I would ask second. Or what I would tell you second is what kind of an inheritance is that? You say, well, I've got 5000 in the bank. When I went home last Sunday evening, I measured up all my assets and liabilities and I found that I'm an, I have net assets of $5,000. Well, terrific, big boy. That's a great job. How old are you? 
What kind of an inheritance is that going to be for your 15 grandchildren? For the poor saint that runs into Lou Gehrig's disease and for when you get laid off and you can't find another job. Do you know how fast 5,000 disappears? You say, well, you're talking about amassing great fortunes. No, 5,000 just doesn't go very far. And any of you who are realistic know that. When you have no income, it can disappear in a hurry. When you have some calls upon you by the saints of the Lord, by family members, what if your parents can no longer work? What are you going to do? I want to get everyone included just about. There may be a couple families in this congregation that do not need to feel greatly convicted about the amount of savings they've done. A fool cannot save and he has nothing. It's a wise man that learns how to save and doesn't spend it all. How do you not spend it all? You pay yourself first. You know, we're taught by Solomon to save first. What do the ants do during the summer? Eat and enjoy or save and then eat for enjoyment? What are they doing all day long but accumulating for winter and eating enough to get by? You say, well, you, you deprive us of all pleasure. Did I say that yet? There's a place for some pleasure and some enjoyment. We'll get to that. You need to learn how to spend. But that's one point I don't need to emphasize here. There is a plate. There, is, there are Bible verses that teach you you need to learn how to spend. And if you can't spend, it's a curse of God and an evil disease, Solomon said. Look at Proverbs 27 and verse 12. Proverbs 27, 12. A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Can you lose your job? Sure. Is that an evil? Financial evil? Sure it is. Can you have some medical emergencies come up that your major medical plan with Blue Cross might not cover everything? Would that be a financial evil? A wise, a prudent man lays some money aside to protect himself from that evil. The simple say, well, that's not going to happen to me, babe. And they roll through life spending everything they make. What are you? Are you a prudent man or a simpleton? Look at 27:24. Proverbs 27 and verse 24. For riches are not forever, and doth the crown endure to every generation. Do you understand that? Your income and your assets are not forever. What measures are you taking to protect them? You need to be taking some measures. Look at 12:27 of the same book. Proverbs 12 and verse 27. The slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting, but the substance of a diligent man is precious. Is your substance precious to you? Do you keep some of it? Do you pay yourself first? Who doesn't pay themselves? The slothful man. The slothful man roasteth, roasteth not that which he took in hunting. You can visualize it. The man goes out in the woods at 5 a.m. on a cold morning Sights a deer at 7 a.m., shoots him, drags him a half mile through the woods, carts him home, cuts it. Noel, he hangs it up in the garage and he looks at it and he's, his wife calls out and says, the Michigan-Ohio State football game is on. So he goes in, sits down, and never cuts it up. A couple days later, it's too late, so he throws it away. 
That's a slothful man. Substance or opportunity or things God grants aren't worth anything to him. He doesn't take advantage of what God brings into his hands. When you take something in hunting, who brings it into your hands? God does. When you bring a paycheck home, who put that in your hands? God. Is it precious to you or not? If it's not precious to you, whereby you get some use out of it for the things God requires, you're slothful. To a diligent man, it's all precious. He thinks about all the work that went into that 40-hour paycheck. If you work the way you ought to, it should mean something. I mean, if you just went to work and retired on the job, like a lot of people do today, I mean, a paycheck doesn't mean much. But if you worked hard, you look at that thing and you realize that's 40 hours of sweat and toil and frustration and pain. Ask Sam Jones about smashing his finger a couple months ago. All kinds of things can happen. What do you do with the money you get for all that? Some of you call me and tell me about the frustration of your jobs. Don't stop doing it. Just start thinking about it when you get your paycheck. Get something for it. Pay yourself second. Savings has got to be a priority in life. It's not an option left for money after expenses. God requires you to save money. Does God require you to go see the Greenville Braves every week? Does God require you to eat out three times a week? Does God require you to take a three-week vacation every year or three-week vacations every year and take your family someplace to, place to blow money? You can't find any of that in the Word of God. But I can find you where He requires savings. So what do you do when you get your paycheck? You do with it what God requires. One, pay God first. Two, pay yourself second to have the savings you're supposed to have. Third, pay your needs. And if you have anything left, you can blow it on a few pleasures. But you pay yourself second after the Lord. I have given you the rule, and if you'll remember it, it'll help you. Work expands to fill the time available for its completion. Don't you all know that yet? Work expands to fill the time available for its completion. If you give yourself two months to finish something, do you know when you'll get done? Sometime after the end of the two months. You'll run out of time. You always will. Unless you give yourself tight deadlines and someone else rides you to get it done in time. Work will expand to fill the time available for its completion. But there's another rule, just as valid. Expenses will rise to absorb all income not accounted for. You try to spend your income and save what's left. Do you know what your savings will amount to? Nothing. Zero at best. Most of you couldn't do that you'd spend more than your income. Expenses will increase to absorb all available income that is not accounted for. You think I've ever said that before? I have stood before the senior management of a $7 billion bank holding company and taught them that same principle and tried to teach them that the reason for corporate decline in America is undisciplined spending. 
Because the minute one of our banks would begin to realize some profits, what happens? That money disappears so fast your head would spin with spin with business lunches and all kind of excesses and seminars and sending us around the country for no good reason to speak of. And anybody who works in business knows that that is true. Unless there is a definite profit requirement and expenses will not absorb any more of the income that's available than what would leave us the profit that we need. It's true of business in America. Businessmen in America are nothing but profligate spenders. No discipline. It takes a man like Lee Iacocca to come along once in a while who will kick some behinds to limit spending and to force savings up front. I have the utmost respect for him. I'd vote for him for president, that socialist, because he knows how to run a business. It took him less than three years to reduce the break-even point at Chrysler from 2.4 million vehicles to 1.1 million vehicles. I was present at the Financial Analyst Society meeting when their treasurer told us what had happened. This was back in 1981 before the recovery began. Chrysler had to produce 2.4 million vehicles in 1979 before they could break even to cover all the fat cat lunches that they were serving to an overstaffed executive group. 2.4 million vehicles they had to sell to break even. Three years later, Lee Iacocca had lowered that to 1.1 million. Do you know how the Lord rewarded him? He brought along an economic recovery. When an economic recovery comes and you've lowered your break-even point, you make more money than you know what to do with. Did Chrysler make more money than they knew what to do with? Remember that bailout by the U.S. government that our bank was involved with and hundreds of other banks across the country? They paid us. We never thought we'd get paid back. They paid us back two years after we made the loans. They made more money in one quarter than Chrysler Corporation ever made in a full year. Does that mean anything to you? They netted a billion net, net a billion dollars in one quarter. Get a load of that. He was fighting GM for who could have the most profits. And Chrysler's a small company compared to GM. How did that happen? Because he withheld spending so that they would have enough set aside for research and development, which they have. If you look at the cars, you can see that in the new cars Chrysler's come out with in the past five years and to lower their break-even point, which is exactly what we all have to do. Savings has got to be a priority. If you don't commit to savings before you spend the first penny, you will not save. Expenses will increase to absorb your income. I could raise every one of you and ask you to give a testimony financially, and you know that what I'm saying is true. If you don't commit up front, you won't save. If all that money's there and you're just telling yourself, I'll save what's left, nothing will be left. But let me tell you, if you'll make a deposit, when you get that paycheck, if you'll make three deposits, one into the Lord's account, one into your account, and one into a general fund, you'll save it if you won't touch it. And listen, I'll take your passbooks. I'll take your withdrawal slips. If you want to, you can bring your amount that you want to save each week and give it to me and I'll deposit it for you. You keep your own identification number. I won't be able to withdraw it, but I won't let you withdraw it either. I'll help you do that. I want to see you make a commitment to do what God wants you to do financially. How much do you have to show for your years of toil, sweat, labor, pain, 
How much? How many years have you worked? How many years have you worked? Listen, I've wasted money too. I don't like thinking back on 18 hours as a mason tender pouring cement floors. What do I have to show for it? A picture of the fastest car in the area and a picture of the fastest motorcycle when I was 16 years old. Now, is that intelligent spending? You say, well, that sounds cool. That sounds stupid. Do you know what I paid for insurance when I was 16 to have the fastest motorcycle and car in my area? Enough to live on comfortably. That was stupid. I've, I've done it too. And those were the hardest years of my life work-wise. And I have nothing to, sh I have very little to show for it. What do you have to show for all of your years? Now let me say this. Anything less than 10% shows a lack of sincerity and defeats the purpose. If you're not going to purpose to save 10%, give up. Be a profligate spender and sin against the Lord. You say, well, how do you know that it's 10%? Well, listen, when the Lord wanted something for himself, he asked for 10%. What are you going to give yourself? 10 less than 10% just doesn't add up. I mean, 10% should be a minimum. Remember last Sunday, we talked about the man who could be 40 years old. He's worked for 20 years. Maybe he's averaged 20 20,000 a year. That's a total of $400,000 gross pay. If he saved 10%, he's got 40000 to show for it. Now, is 40000 net worth an unrealistic amount for a man that's 40? No way. Shouldn't be. That's only 10%. Remember the requirements of an inheritance for your children and grandchildren. That takes some savings. 2%, you know, 10 bucks a week doesn't get it. You need to lay aside a portion of your earnings. I mean, what are you worth? 2%? Put something aside so that it can accumulate on your behalf. You know what Stuart Crane recommends? And I've done it for a while. Living on half your income. That's giving God. Let's say you give God 10% off the top. Pay yourself 50%. What do you have left? Forty. You live on it. When I was making between eighteen and twenty-two thousand, and I had two children for part of that time period and three children for another part, I did that back in Michigan when I was about twenty-two years of age. I lived on half my income, just the way I described. Eventually, you've got to spend, and we deprived ourselves more than I should have. But what I'm saying is, don't, don't convince yourself and don't try to convince me that because you're saving 2% a month, you're saving. What are 2% a month? What are you going to do for your parents when they need some help? Or your children? Or the poor saints? Or you lose your job? How long is 2% going to keep you alive? 10%? Every 10 years, you're setting aside a full year. 2%? Every 50 years, you're setting aside a year. Think about it in, in those type of terms. Did you know that if you save 10%, you won't notice the difference in your standard of living? Now, if you haven't been giving either, and all of a sudden you're now going to, let's say you're going to give 10%, you're going to save 10%, it could affect your standard of living a little bit. 
10% will not. Try If you don't believe me, take me up on it and try to prove me wrong. Set aside 10% right off the top, forget about it, and live on the rest. You will find enough. The Lord will take care of it, and I know who's on my side when it comes to that. The Lord will take care of you and bless you financially. Look at Proverbs 27 and verse 7. 27 and 7. The full soul loatheth and honeycomb, but to the hungry soul every bitter thing is sweet. What's the point from this verse? Deprive yourself a little bit by paying yourself first and you'll enjoy the things of life more. Let your savings accumulate and grow. When you begin saving that 10%, which I recommend as a minimum, and setting it aside and paying yourself first, don't you touch that unless you absolutely have to. And check with 5, 10, or 20 counselors before you do that. Don't touch your savings. You must be consistent in contributing to it. You've got to be patient to let it grow. But let it grow. Do not rob it. If you rob it, you are robbing something that God has designated for your financial well-being. Savings is an amazing thing. How many of you would like to be managers and business owners? How many of you would like to be able to sit at home and when you crawl into the sack at night, know that there are a couple 24-hour McDonald's, one in this town and one in North Carolina that you own, where employees are working hard to make you an extra buck while you're sleeping? Does that sound good? Doesn't everyone want to own their own business for that purpose? I mean, I'm going to take a vacation every minute you're gone. Your employees are back there working diligently. That is what savings is. When you save money, you have employees called dollars that are working for you 24 hours a day around the clock, earning interest or earning profits through the common stock of companies like McDonald's, IBM, and Commodore and other companies, you say, well, that's, you're just getting very practical here and that's not biblical. Try me. Matthew 25. This is beautiful. In Matthew chapter 25, you want to have people working for you while you're laying in bed? you got to save to have it. Matthew 25. I hadn't read this parable in the talents until the last few months as closely as I should have a long time ago. Look at verse 24. This is the man that buried his talent. He which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man. Here, the, this Lord here in this parable was a hard man financially. Well, what was hard about him? Because you reap where thou hast not sown, you gather where thou hast not strawed. Let's keep going. Verse 26. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Now, would you tell me how you reap where you have not sown? Through savings and investment, where you are able to loan capital, where others borrow the capital to sow, and then you reap the profits in the form of interest, they have to pay you back part of their reaping when you never sowed anything. That's a hard man financially. That's a good man financially. And the, the 
foolish, slothful servant knew that, but he was intimidated by the challenge, so he did nothing. He buried his talent. Savings is like having all these little creatures working just for you 24 hours a day. Little employees. You know, after you have enough money laid aside and you don't want to just put it all in a bank, well, I'll help you or anyone can help you buy an interest in a mutual fund, buy some common stock. You can own that McDonald's. And when you go in and sit at a McDonald's once in a while, you can realize that those employees that are hustling around back there with grease and sweat on their face are working for you. It's one of the greatest pleasures in financial matters. And it's described right here in Matthew 25. Reaping, where you, if you ever flipped, you wouldn't have ever flipped a burger. But guess what you're doing? You're getting part of the 59 cents paid for that cheeseburger. That's the beauty of having savings. You spend it all, forget it. You're on your own till the day you die. You set some money aside, it accumulates, it works for you 24 hours a day. But it takes time and consistency. Time and consistency. How many of you have ever heard of the rule of 72? The rule of 72, a couple of you have. It's just a neat little rule of thumb to remember. The rule of 72, any combination of years and interest rates that equal 72 will double your money. Any combination of interest rates and years that equal 72 will double your money. If you can earn 6% for 12 years, that's 72, 6 times 12, it'll double your money. If you can earn 12% for 6 years, it'll double your money. If you can earn 24% for 3 years, it'll double your money. It's exciting to think about little things like that, but guess what the rule of 72 requires? Savings and time. Time, I said years, didn't I? That's why you don't rob your savings. You accumulate some and let it work for you. The beauty of the time value of money is something to remember. And who gave interest? Who designed interest? Or production? God did. Just like He designed men with the ingenuity to go out and thresh wheat, but to grind corn in Isaiah 28. Let's say you can earn 24%. You say, well, that's impossible. The banks only pay five. Listen, there are mutual funds that little old ladies invest in that have averaged 24% for the last 15 years. Every three years, your money's doubling. But don't you can't go into those funds unless you have some capital. doesn't take much. If you put money away at 24% a year and in three years it's doubled, what happens the next three years? That doubled amount doubles again. So at the end of six years, what do you have for every one dollar you put in six years ago? Four. What about three years later? Eight. What about three years later? Sixteen. You say, well, I could never achieve 24%. Leave it alone then. Work with six. Work with 12. You just need more time that way. The same thing happens. Time and consistency. And savings will grow. Every man has, during his lifetime, opportunities to invest money to make that kind of a return or greater. Every man, during his lifetime, will have opportunities to make good income. But do you know what it takes to get those opportunities? 
capital, liquid capital, which is savings. If you don't have savings, when someone stops you at work and tells you about a business deal, and you spend time and wisely consider that business deal, and the Lord blesses that business venture, you can get ahead further. But what did you have to even ha have that person talk to you? What did you have to have for that person to even talk to you? Some savings. Some savings where you can't even take advantage of the opportunity that comes along. We've covered three rules. Obey God. Pay God first. Pay yourself second. When I say pay yourself second, that means you take savings right off the top. Do you know how I was raised from as early as I can remember when I didn't know the difference between a nickel and a dime except that I thought a nickel was worth more because it was bigger? you know what I had to do? I had three little banks given to me by my parents. I'll, not, I'll tell you what they were. My dad wouldn't spend money on a piggy bank. He could make one. He took three baby food jars, drilled holes through the top, and taped them together. And the three baby food jars said, Lord, savings, and me. 10% went into the first one. 10% went into the second one. And I got whatever was left. From before I knew the difference between a nickel and a dime, I can remember, and listen, I wasn't paid very high wages at home. For those of you who know, my, I got a penny a chore. A penny a chore. I mean, if I vacuumed the living room and the hallway, I got paid a penny. But they'd accumulate. And every week, we'd have payday. My dad would sit down and count out the pennies. For every ten, one went to the Lord. For every ten, one went to myself in savings. And then the other eight were for spending. By the time I got married, from doing paper routes, working as a mason tender, and wasting a lot of money on cars and motorcycles, and some other foolish wastes of money, I had $4,000 sitting in the bank as a 19-year-old that was married. Even though I sat down and I still ate fruit cocktail to splurge, I would only live on my income. I would not live on my savings. I had to live within my income. and my income was low, I'll take anyone on in this congregation based on rent for the income that I earned. But I lived within it. I'll tell you. I made $2.65 an hour when I started at Ann Arbor Bank and Trust only 10 years ago, 1976. My gross pay was 450 a month. Do you want to think about my take home? It was about 375. Do you know what my rent was? 180. Do you know what that left me? $195 to live on. Did I live on it? Yes, indeed. Did I ever touch my savings? Not on your life. You all can do it. Three banks as a child, though. Are you trying to teach your children the same way? I thank my father for that. He's tight and so am I. Rule number four, and we're going to need to hurry quickly on this one, minimize expenses. Rule number four is to minimize expenses. Look at Proverbs 21.20 again. It teaches two rules. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 20. There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. You need to learn how to minimize your expenses. 
You know, it's not usually the high cost of living as everyone complains. It's not the high cost of living that gets you in financial difficulty. It's the cost of high living. And there's a big difference between the high cost of living and the cost of high living. One is based on circumstances outside your control. One is simply your decision to live higher than your means. You say, but I can't afford it. Are you saving and giving the way you ought to be? No, you can't afford it. That's easy, isn't it? A penny, Benjamin Franklin said, a penny saved is a penny earned. You know what he meant by that statement? He meant if you would grab onto that penny and not give it away to someone else, it was like earning an extra penny. For every penny you could hold on to and not spend it, it was like earning an extra penny. Do you understand that? Instead of just giving them all away, as men are so prone to do. Well, there's something different today. That statement is no longer true. For most of you who are in about a 30% tax bracket, a penny saved, that means a penny not spent, is one and a half pennies earned. Follow it with me. You're in a 30% marginal tax bracket. Most of you in here are in that tax bracket, whether you know it or not, at the margin. You can ask me about that later. But if you earn one and a half cents, you're going to pay 30% of that in income taxes, which is half a cent, which leaves you with the one cent that you could have saved. One of the easiest ways to increase your disposable income is to reduce your expenses. If you can reduce your expenses 10%, that's equivalent to increasing your income 15%. You say, well, I'm bare bones now. Are you bare bones? Do you want to come and talk to me about how bare bones you are? You can get bare bones. Live sacrificially. Learn that financial success means discipline and giving up some of your desires. And isn't that what all of life is about? Life is hard work, mental discipline, and toughness. You've got to learn how to be tough and to make tough decisions and not spend where you want to. Just as we do in every other area of our life, whether it's loving our wives, raising our children properly, getting out of bed on time and being diligent, or being to church every Sunday. Everything requires mental toughness to make decisions against our flesh. Your flesh wants to spend. I don't need to ask your flesh. It wants to spend. You need to have mental toughness. You need to live sacrificially. Impul impulsive, foolish, and wasteful spending makes you brother to guess who? Proverbs 18.9 I do a lot of railing on lazy bums, don't I? Guess what family reunion you'd have to go to if the Lord ever called one for the family of finance. Proverbs 18.9 He also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. You waste your money on frivolous, impulsive type spending, you're a brother to a sluggard. You're no better than a sluggard. You belong in the same family. I do a lot of railing on those that are lazy. But it's just as important for you to be wise and to minimize your spending. Look at Proverbs 21:17. This is the state of America today. Proverbs 21:17, he that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. Period. He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. 
If you love pleasure so much that you can't forego vacations, you can't forego going to the ballpark, you can't forego all kinds of other activities that this world will throw at you to spend your money, you're not going to get ahead. You shall not get ahead. You shall be poor. Now, we've dealt with some shalls this morning. You obey God, you shall prosper. You pay God first, your barns shall be filled. You love pleasure and spending, you shall be poor. You need to learn how to live sacrificially and to live within the 80% or whatever the percentage might be that is left after paying God first and paying yourself second. It is good to sit around. We did it with the Smiths a couple nights ago and just talk about how rough it was when we were first married and how little we had to live on. It's good to do that once in a while because we all made it. We all made it. We could live at those levels. God's not calling us to go back to those levels necessarily. You don't have to get close to those levels to save 10% and give an amount that would be liberal to the Lord. But it does require giving up some. See, if you don't give up anything, listen, there's no free lunch in life, even in God's book. You have to work for anything that's good. You have to give up some pleasure. He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. You love sleep, you're going to come to poverty. You always have to give up things. But if you can learn how to give up some of those discretionary, impulsive, foolish expenses, like the car and motorcycle I had when I was 16, do you know how much money I lost just so that I could say I had the fastest car and the fastest motorcycle? Foolish. Absolutely foolish. There are some wise practices that will help you minimize expenses in your family. Learn to be a wise shopper. First of all, how do you become a wise shopper? Limit the opportunities advertisers have to seduce you. Any of you who have taken courses on marketing or advertising know that advertising is just a gimmick to seduce you. Have you ever sat down with your family, watched a television for a while, and explained the ads to your younger children as to what they were trying to accomplish? See, children almost think of it as entertainment when advertisements come on. It's all seduction to get you to spend for pleasure and things you don't need necessarily. Limit the opportunities. The less TV you watch, the less magazines you read, the less newspapers you read, and the less radio you listen to, you're going to be subject to less seduction. I mean, what is it? You stay away, don't you, from seduction if you're trying to avoid falling? Question sales. Just because something's on sale, don't jump up, run out of the house, and go buy on sale. Marlene Edwards, bless her heart, a couple weeks ago told me to bank that kind of saving. Try to bank it. You know when people go out to buy, I saved so much? You know how your wife comes home sometimes or your husband comes home and says, you wouldn't believe I saved $75 at the store today. Well, Marlene's attitude is, go bank it then. Well, how do you bank it? There's nothing to bank. It's all an illusion created by the greatest seductress of the 20th century. Modern advertising and marketing. Don't buy things to save money. You buy things because you need them and only buy them because you need them. Don't buy things to save money. If you need something, try to buy it at the lowest price. But don't try to buy to save. It just doesn't work that way. Shop less. How many of you purchase groceries on a daily basis? 
Don't say none of you do it. We all do it from time to time, and it's an evil of the 20th century. Convenience stores. You shop on a daily basis, you're going to be a poor person. Why? Because the convenience store will charge you a hefty 25% more than your local supermarket where you could go once a week. And when you get in there, you're going to be tempted to buy things that you don't need. You go to the grocery store once a week with a list of everything you need. You say, well, that takes five or ten minutes of sitting down and making a list before I go. That's the kind of mental toughness I'm talking about, you poor people. That's a little bit of mental toughness, but it's something that needs to be done. You can go once a week, buy everything, and you don't go back to the store where your growling stomach can get you to spend five or ten bucks more than you intended to and go with a belly full. Go to the grocery store once a week after you ate. Destroy your credit cards if you're not disciplined. Credit cards are a great convenience. I don't have a thing against them except for undisciplined people. If you're undisciplined, there's one place for them. File 13, as I used to call it. That's your trash basket. Don't be too proud to buy used. You know how much money you can save by buying used cars, furniture, homes, appliances, clothing, instead of buying new. Don't think that every man has the right to a, a vacation every year at some exotic place for you to waste your money. Vacations are no right. Would you please show me your grandparents that ever had a vacation? You say, well, that'd be living like my grandparents. Listen, if we lived like our grandparents and all of America lived like our grandparents, America would be great once again financially. They didn't waste all their money running around on vacations. I didn't condemn vacations. Just don't think you have a right to them every year. If you're behind financially, you don't have a right to a vacation. Use the phone to save some money. You, don't, you can do a great deal of shopping just by picking up the phone and finding out how much merchandisers will differ even in one city on the price of a commodity. Use insurance only to protect against catastrophic loss. We live in a society where everyone thinks they need insurance to cover everything they do. I mean, most people have a major medical plan that will cover you if you go to the doctor because you have been sneezing. And if you buy insurance like that where your employer isn't providing it, all you're doing is subsidizing other fools who go to doctors when they're sneezing. The only reason you should have insurance is to protect you against catastrophe. And that means some type of a high deductible form of insurance only for those areas where you have to have it. For instance, how many of you carry collision on cars that don't really justify collision? You don't need collision. You say, but what if I had an accident and had to pay $1,000? Pay the $1,000, you'll earn it back in about three or four years with saved premiums. Go ahead and pay it. Let Greg help you fix the car instead of the insurance company doing it for you. Use doctors and dentists only for emergencies unless you can afford cosmetic extras. Would you please tell me the generation that has taken the liberty our generation has in running to a doctor or a dentist all the time? Have they made it just as healthy as we have? Let me remind you of a few things. Doctors and dentists are not in business because they love you. God has not called doctors to an office where they serve you. 
They are not your servants. They are your lords and will take everything you have if you'll give it to them. They are in business for a profit. That is why a person will go to 12 years of higher education to get an M.D., knowing what he's going to charge the poor sheep when he gets out. Put up with a little pain before running to a clinic. Medicine doesn't prolong life. Americans don't live any longer today than they lived in David's day when they put fig leaves on a problem. David said three score and ten, and if by reason of strength, four score. You go call your life insurance company tomorrow and ask them for a person that attains the age of ten, what's the life expectancy today compared to what it was a hundred years ago? Do you know what he'll tell you? It hasn't changed measurably. And it hasn't since God created man and decided he was going to live 70 years. Now, some wise practices will make sure you get to the three score and ten. Don't get me wrong. Or will help you get to the three score and ten. But don't think medicine has added any years to your life by running to them all the time. Learn about your body and health. When you go in and sit with those crooks, know something about your body so that you can understand what they're talking about in their language. So that you can question them. Tell them they're wrong. Tell them about some new therapy that's on the market that they may not know about because they're so busy cramming patients in every 15 minutes so they can make $225,000 a year. If you have large food bills, give your wife an incentive plan for grocery purchases. A couple of you families are doing it, and I like the results I've heard so far. If you think one of your problems are grocery purchases, lower the amount you've averaged for the last two months by 10%, Give that amount to your wife and tell her she can have to keep for her own spending anything that's left over after buying groceries. The bills will come down. I mean, it, listen, every, every man in business knows that incentive compensation works with the right kind of people. And hopefully in our church we have people who appreciate being rewarded for a job well done. Set a limit on eating out. It's talking with some of you families, it's easy to know that one of the greatest sources of financial trouble is eating out. That's a convenience, again, of our generation. Not even our parents' generation. Our generation. But it's my right to eat out two or three times a week, every woman thinks. Practically, today. Oh, no, it isn't. When was the last time your grandmother ate out? How many times a week did she eat out? And they got ahead. They weren't spending all their money on conveniences all the time. Some foolish ways of saving money include baking bread. Don't bake your bread. Buy it. I can buy it cheaper than you can bake it any day of the week. Unless you work for less than nothing. Don't try to save money sewing clothes. I didn't say mending clothes. Be careful about the time you spend on sewing your own clothing. You shop the right stores. You can buy it cheaper than you can sew it. Much of the time or you can buy it cheaper at your neighbor's garage sale than you can make it. That doesn't mean you can't ever make anything. Just watch it. It's not a way to save money. If you want to make it because you want to make the perfect dress for your daughter or the perfect little suit for your son, that's a whole other issue. Don't try to save money. Imprudent canning. I've heard and seen people 
why they'll run off to some farm someplace and buy all this corn, bring it home, slave for a week trying to put the stuff up, and I can walk down to the local bilo and buy a pound of that frozen stuff for 79 cents a pound, and they paid $1.50 a dozen for those ears anyway. You don't be smart. Be smart in trying to save money. Don't buy exorbitant quality. Any of you who've taken marketing classes know that there's a word in your English dictionary called snob appeal. Go look it up in your dictionary. Snob appeal. That's a claim to quality with a price that matches it that isn't justified. Don't always tell me about that you buy quality. I'll turn to snob appeal and show you how that they took another one. There goes another sheep to the slaughter thinking they're buying quality when all they did was buy snob appeal. haagen ice cream. Mercedes-Benz, I hear, whispered. <laughs> Don't buy unnecessary quantities. You know, when Sam, when the Super Saver Warehouse opened on Woodruff Road, everyone thought their financial woes were over. When Sam's opened up, they thought their financial woes were really over because now they had two benefactors in competition with each other. The problem is, when you go to Sam's and try to save money at Sam's, you'll end up buying ten times more than you need. And when you buy ten times more than you need and take it home, guess what happens? You eat five times more than you would have eaten otherwise. It doesn't... You eat more when you have more at home. If you went with a grocery list of groceries for seven days and you knew that they would make 21 meals as a good wife should plot out, you don't need boxes of excess food sitting in the pantry for your husband to raid and your children to raid all the time as they will if it's there. I mean, if you've bought 10 pounds of that sliced processed cheese at Sam's, when you have your hamburgers, instead of putting one on it, you'll want two or three. And I could, listen, I could multiply examples all day long. If it's stacked, have you ever seen those stacks at Sam's? I mean, when they sell you cheese, they sell you cheese, don't they? And when you see that stack sitting on the kitchen counter, well, why not pop an extra one? When you've got your little dinky weekly package, you're limited by your own prudent planning. Don't let Sam, how do you think they're making money? quantity. You think they... How, how are they making their money? They're getting sheep another way. Ecclesiastes 5 verses 18 through 20 tell us that not being able to spend your money is an evil disease. I'm not trying to tell you that we need to go back to the way our great-grandparents lived and totally deprived themselves and never visited a McDonald's. I'm not saying that. Because you need to spend once in a while. I'm telling you, after that period of time, which was six months to a year that I lived on half my income, I went berserk. I'd take my wife out some weekends. I didn't have anything I needed to buy. I was going to spend some money if it was the last thing I did. Oh, we, oh, we'd go buy some furniture or we'd waste it on some restaurant that we had no more intention of visiting, but we had to spend it. It'll eat a hole in your pockets. I mean, if you don't spend any. It's a gift of God in Ecclesiastes 5 to be able to spend a little bit once in a while. That's the fruit of your labor. I'm not saying don't spend any, but you need to learn how to minimize your expenses. It's a foolish man that spends it all up. The wise man has some left over 
in his dwelling. You know, a budget's not crucial. Some of you need a budget. So when I say a budget's not crucial, I'm not speaking to you. Some of you need a budget. But if you pay God first, pay yourself second, do you need a budget? Not really. You may just need a budget the first few months to make sure that you can live within the 80% without your landlord throwing you out. I mean, you do want to pay your landlord. You do want to pay your utilities so your power doesn't get shut off. So you may want to do a little budgeting to make sure you can live within the 80%. But if when you get that check, you write a check to God, you write a check to yourself, you've got 80% left, why worry about the complications of a budget? If you'll live on the 80%, it'll, your expenses will, take, will have to take care of themselves. If you're totally undisciplined, then you should lay down a budget. I'll go over it with you. Other members would go over it with you. Take it to a financial planner and let him show you that you can live on 80% of your income and show you how it would be done. We've covered four rules today. Obey God. Obey God, you shall prosper. Pay God first, your barns shall be filled. Pay yourself second, you will have treasure to be desired and oil in your dwelling. Minimize your expenses to avoid being like the foolish man who spends everything up. I'm not trying to be trite in these sermons at all. I'm talking about sanctification and your financial success. When we sit around together in our wheelchairs, when we're 60, 70, 80 years old, I want you to be paying your, old, your own way in the old folks' home and not have your children doing it for you. I want you to be able to give to your children to get them off to a good start. I want to see your children raised with the same ten rules that I'm giving you. I want to see this congregation able to step in and perform in a mighty way when one of you has need. See, I'm looking out for you. If the congregation has nothing laid aside, we won't be able to help. Listen, there may be calls upon us evangelistically. We may send someone out of this church as a minister for a congregation in St. Louis, in Bristol, where the first year or two they may not be able to support a pastor full-time. Guess who will? We'll make up the difference. If we're not set financially to help do that, what will happen to the cause of Christ? I could go on forever. I want the best for the Lord and the best for you. And as Solomon said, money answers all things. And if you'll be wise in it, it will bring you a degree of carnal peace here in this world, which is what we're living in right now is a carnal existence in, a car in, the, in our bodies of flesh. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word to your prophet.